This week on Wealth Track, Sarah Ketterer, one of the top managers in the beleaguered international value field, explains why the opportunities have never been greater. What we tell our clients is, you don't have to give up on your growth. Hooray, keep putting money behind growth if you want. But don't forget, you need that insurance policy of owning undervalued stocks, particularly these some great global companies that have been completely ignored that will have their day in the sun. The portfolio manager of Causeway International Value Fund is with us on this week's Consuelo Mack Wealth Track. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Funding provided by Morgan Le Fay Dreams Foundation, Clearbridge Investments, Miller Value Funds, Royce & Associates, Matthews Asia, First Eagle Investment Management, and Strategus Asset Management. Hello and welcome to this edition of Wealth Track. I'm Consuelo Mack. One extraordinary characteristic of this pandemic period has been stock market performance. A recent Wall Street Journal headline captured it perfectly. Turbocharged stocks blast off. In its third quarter markets review, the journal points out that more stocks skyrocketed at least 400% in the first three quarters of this year than in any comparable period since 2000. This is not a tide that is lifting all boats, anything but. The overwhelming majority of the winners are tech or biotech related. The divergence among the major indexes tells the story. While well, a chock full of tech NASDAQ composite index advanced 24% in the first three quarters of the year, the S&P 500 edged ahead a little over 4%, and the Dow Jones Industrial Average fell nearly 3%. And after a record-breaking 11-month winning streak, growth stocks, as represented by the Russell 1000 Growth Index, finally lagged value stocks for the month of September. Another big performance gap, the U.S. versus the rest of the world. Aside from China and a handful of other markets, world markets are also lagging. Now, these trends are of particular interest to this week's guest. She is Sarah Ketterer, Chief Executive Officer of Causeway Capital Management, which she co-founded in 2001 and now has more than $40 billion in assets under management. She is portfolio manager for the firm's fundamental strategies, including three of Causeway's five mutual funds. She and her team at the flagship Causeway International Value Fund were nominated for Morningstar's International Stock Fund Manager of the Year Award in 2013 and have earned a gold Morningstar Analyst rating. The combination of its deep value and international focus has proven to be challenging in this era of high-performing tech and U.S.-centric stocks. Several months ago, Ketterer told me she has never felt so beleaguered as a value investor. I asked her how she feels now. Well, I have to admit, Consuelo, there's still a prevailing dislike for the cheap that permeates all markets. And the converse is true. Investors seem to be, they delight in the combination of growth and what they call quality and and momentum. But all that aside, I may have said beleaguered, but I'm also fascinated. My colleagues and I have never seen more undervalued stocks of what we consider to be quality companies in our careers. So in that sense, it's invigorating. And as for when these companies actually deliver the earnings upturn that gets the market excited about them, 
that remains to be seen. And that's really our job as active managers is to make that sort of determination. There are two big challenges that you are facing at Causeway. One is the value and the other is international. <laughs> and both have lagged, you know, U.S. big tech substantially yeah. as everything else has. How do you explain value? Good question. It's starting out like every client meeting. What's happened to value? And part of this right. is what's happened to the global economy because so many stocks in the value category, at least in recent years, in 2018, 19 in particular, had become cyclical stocks. So they became, to be value, you were economically sensitive. The two categories became almost synonymous. And we saw in the fourth quarter of last year that with expectations of, of, of recovery in some areas and continued strong U.S. economy, these value stocks started to do much better. And then came the pandemic. And with lockdowns, that really sent the market scurrying away from these more undervalued stocks. And as you rightly noted, non-U.S. developed markets have a, uh, less technology in their indices than does the U.S., less growth in general, and more cyclicality. So that's one of the reasons why international has lagged the U.S., with emerging markets being a slight exception because there's so many internet growth stocks in those, that are large in those indices. But at some point in time, cycles turn. And that's really the message we give to our clients and our fund shareholders is cycles turn. If there, if there were no cycles, it would break all the basic rules of nature. And being positioned for an upturn means that investors can take advantage of what are incredibly cheap stocks. For example, we haven't seen the value discount to growth in terms of PE multiple be this large since the TMT bubble of the late 90s, early 2000s. And we know how extreme that was. What is it going to take to, to change this cycle? It is that in favor of uh, on value and in favor of international. The uh, global economies need to improve. We need the end of lockdowns, and we need people, people through the, the implementation of locks of vaccines. There's, there, there may be, we estimate 15 billion doses of vaccines of various types that are now in phase three available next year. And with that, uh, a better functioning economy should bring investors back into the most economically sensitive stocks. It's impossible for me to imagine we're not going to get through this pandemic, and it's just a question of when the market begins to anticipate that recovery. Value has been lagging growth now for a decade. And uh, I guess, you know, my question is, uh, you know, how has the pandemic changed that dynamic? Has it just accentuated it? Mm. Yes, it has. Very much so. And it's not just the pandemic and the resulting lockdowns and the cessation of economic activity for a period of time. It's the government response that's so fascinating. Governments globally have put central bank balance sheets to, in the first six months of this year, went up for, by $5 trillion. I can't even conceive of a trillion dollars. It's just a shockingly astronomical amount of money that has been pumped into global financial systems, which brings down interest rates and combine that with huge multi-trillion dollar fiscal spending and you get a lot of stimulus and then you get people stuck at home trading stocks and all of this leads to a kind of snowball effect. So what we tell our clients is you don't have to give up on your growth. Hooray, keep putting money behind growth if you want, 
But don't forget, you need that insurance policy of owning undervalued stocks, particularly these some great global companies that have been completely ignored, that will have their day in the sun. You know, it's interesting that you call it uh, an insurance policy. W where's the insurance yeah. in the, the, this, the value proposition? Well, let me give you an example. So at the absolute greatest pain point for this pandemic in terms of stock market constituents are the aerospace, travel, hospitality stocks. They've just been dreadful. And no surprise, this has all gone on longer than any of us would have liked or expected. But if you think about it, if there are world-class companies that are trading at some of the lowest valuations in their history, and yet they also are the beneficiaries of maybe only one, one or two other competitors in an oligopoly, or I'm thinking of Airbus in the UK, the world's largest aircraft manufacturer. They're bigger than Boeing. They're a phenomenal business. They only have one major competitor, and the stock was trading at more than twice its current price as of January of this year. Now, who knows when when aviation and defense and helicopters are going to see big order recovery, but I'm pretty confident they will. And if the business is adequately capitalized, if it's got enough liquidity to get through this period of time, lots of government support behind this company as well, it's not going away at over 50 billion euros in market cap. What an option. Like, you can get your doubles from value stocks, too. That's the message that we are, we're sending our clients is it's not just an exciting growth stock. Stocks that have been so beaten up in, in businesses that have a future, that are well positioned, you can get your 100% return. I'm not saying it will happen. I'll be locked up and by my compliance department, but it's very, the, these companies are well positioned for that, and it wasn't so long ago they traded it valuations well in excess of where they are today. As a value investor at Causeway, you know, your focus is on finding, and I'm reading from uh, some quotes that you had given me in another show, you look for undervalued companies with superior financial strength that are returning capital to shareholders through dividends or stock buybacks. So uh, given the pandemic experience and situation and the pressure, there is pressure on the financial strength of companies, number one, in these industries that are uh, under pressure. And there's also pressure on their ability to pay dividends and, uh, and purchase stocks. How much of a concern is that? That's a very good point to bring up because in some cases, like banks, in the US, regulators have asked them to cease buybacks. In Europe, they've, the banks have been right. asked to cease any return of capital to shareholders during this pandemic period. But that, to us, just postpones the inevitable, which is overcapitalized entities returning that surplus to shareholders. That's all, that's all in the future and the near future, as far as we're concerned. So pandemics are a little unusual. We didn't put that in our uh, description of what we look for. And we don't blame these institutions for retaining cash in a really uncertain period. However, if they're well positioned, and I would just point to the banks again, we've never seen bank valuations this low, not even in the global financial crisis of 2008 and early 2009. And some of these banks, they're so disliked, which we find baffling. My colleagues and I can't understand why a bank would trade, its market capitalization would be less than the surplus capital on the bank's balance sheet, surplus to regulatory requirements. That's shocking. and. That's way beyond a dislike for cheap. That's an absolute abhorrence. 
So, so maybe to your point, Consuela, maybe investors have abandoned these stocks because there's no income now and they see absolutely no reason to park capital in them, even if they're trading it. 30 or 40 percent of their tangible book value, which is book value less goodwill, which is blindingly undervalued because they don't see, there's not, they're not being paid to wait. And I understand that. However, when the announcements come for the dividends, the stocks will start to move inevitably because the present value of all the cash the business can return to shareholders is in effect what it should be trading for today. So, so you're basically saying, it, you know, it's better to be early because when the when the switch goes on, it's going to be too late to get in at these kind of levels at any rate. Often investors underestimate how rapidly stocks respond to news. And I point to the recoveries that we saw after the TMT bubble in early 2000, uh, the recovery we saw after the European financial crisis in 2012. And it and after the global financial crisis a few years prior in 2008-9, those recoveries were led by cyclical stocks. They were led by materials and industrials, financials, consumer discretionary, because those were the areas that were investors had the most concern about and yet had the greatest gains ahead as economies improved. So yeah, I know it's just human nature. Nobody wants to own something that looks like it's dead in the water. But that's where, again, right. we're supposed to be, as with a research department, identifying the wheat from the chaff. Which are the better companies, better managed, and well-situated for recovery? One of the areas uh, that you've mentioned in the past with me is that European banks are, are incredibly cheap, for one. And so g give us some examples of, of European banks that you yeah. think are uh, you know, kind of screaming values and have the kind of characteristics that, you know, the financial strength and the return on capital potential uh, mm. that you look for? Well, one of the most undervalued is one of Italy's largest banks. It's Unicredit. And in all of Europe, what's changed now, a new regulator is in charge who is more pro-banks, wants the banks to be profitable, and wants them to merge and cut costs. And we see this in Spain. We've seen some of it in Italy. That's all. That's a good backdrop for owning an inexpensive financial institution. But Unicredit has a big German business, a big Central Eastern European business, and, and it's the Central and Eastern European part that's showing the greatest amount of growth, whereas Italy, as you might imagine, doesn't grow much. Still, almost half of their earnings come from non-interest income sources. That would be fees associated with asset management and uh, trade and using their balance sheet to for their clients, etc. Equities trading, whatever else. So I think a lot of investors misunderstand. You could be in a low to zero to negative interest rate environment and still make money if you're a bank. When if they're making some money, even though they're provisioning for ultimate some bad debts associated with the pandemic, that means their capital will be largely intact. So if Unicredit is one of these crazy situations where their market capitalization is so low, you're basically buying when it trades for the same amount as its surplus capital. You're getting the bank for free. We find it jaw-dropping how cheap that bank is. Sarah, another bank that you own uh, is Banco Bilbao, which is a Spanish-based uh, bank. Tell us about that. Spain is a good place to bank, and they have a, they've got Mexico's largest bank, Bancomer, and the Mexican banking environment is underpenetrated, so there's lots of room for growth there. 
But if you're a Euro the words European and bank together in a sentence, everyone's mouth just bursts into flames. I mean, it's considered to be absolutely hated. So for a contrarian investor, to the to the degree we're highly, highly confident in the in the well-capitalized, st stable nature of these banks, and they're now more favorable regulatory environment, and the fact that there's this catalyst through consolidation and more cost-cutting, it couldn't be more attractive. But but once those banks move, they will go. They'll return to where they traded in January this year, pre-pandemic, which in many cases is twice where they are today. The U.S. banks aren't doing too well either. Mm -hmm. uh, you are a global investor. Are there any opportunities in the U.S. banking industry? Yes, uh, we like City in part due to its global nature, but. They and like a Wells Fargo coming out of a scandalous period, so there's already a discount on the valuation, they're very well situated for recovery. They too have plenty of capital. The story's really the same for banks in the uh -huh. developed world, whether you're talking Europe or the US. It's just more acutely undervalued in Europe um, as if European investors consider them uninvestable. Whenever someone says uninvestable, we get really excited because that means there's an opportunity, assuming there's that important criteria that's met, which is financial strength. I just want to say they're, they're, uh -huh. they're, they've got uh, really attractive credit card businesses, and household credit isn't, you know, we had a very high levels. I think we were over 80%. Household credit to GDP in the 2008 global financial crisis. Today, that number is in the low 60s. It's even much lower than that in other parts of the world, Europe and Japan. So this is not a financial crisis. This is a health care crisis. And as a result, the fact that financials as a, as a sector have been so hard hit, perhaps that's a misunderstanding of how they will fare in the quarters and years ahead. Sarah, one of the industries that we haven't discussed yet that's been really hard to hit is the tourism industry. And, you know, we talked about Airbus that delivers planes, uh, but what about uh, the airlines themselves and tourism and hospitality in general? Yeah. There are plenty of opportunities, Consuelo. As you can imagine, these are not popular areas for investors. And there's lots of nervousness about when planes will return to the sky and to levels they achieved in 2019. It could be, according to IATA, it's going to be three plus years from now that we get back to 2019 levels. That's too long in most investor horizons. But I think of that as, and so do my colleagues, is that's just all upside potential. And there are, I'd say, low fixed costs. Unlike an airline, there are low fixed cost businesses you can buy that have lots of there are variable costs. They don't. They easily survive on very little cash for now. They can hibernate, and I'd include the online travel agencies like a Booking.com. It's a it's it's a business that we as a value investor would have been hard pressed to buy, and now nobody wants it. And the global distribution system stocks. Those are the ones that stand between the travel agents and the airlines and the hotels and rental cars. Like um, an Amadeus in Europe or a Saber in the U.S., you know they don't have the best balance sheets. It's been a tough period for them, but they're not going away. And their airline customers need them, need their software and their expertise. So getting position now seems like a very good idea to us because unless everybody's going to stay home, in which case we all have bigger problems. <laughs> their the um, <laughs> aviation is how else are we going to get anywhere? I can't wait to get off of video conferencing, no offense, but it's really annoying. <laughs> I want to be with people. <laughs>
And, and then if you think about aviation in terms of what are the highest value components of aviation, one of them is aircraft engines. And one place one could go for that is good old GE. Uh, General Electric, right. maybe the most misunderstood, so a, a beleaguered company run by a great executive, Larry Culp, who comes from Danaher. But this company's two best businesses going into 2020, in our view, are the aviation business and the healthcare business. And yet aviation hit the pandemic pretty hard. But there's so much opportunity for improvement. GE has uh, renewables and power generation. They've got a finance business. There will be restructuring benefits for years to come. And a lot of that accentuated by the recovery in getting more planes in the sky, which means more flying hours, which means from a business that has a lot of revenues from service and aftermarket care, more revenue for GE and more cash flow. But they'll lose, we think they'll lose $2 billion of free cash flow this year, which I know sounds shocking, but this is a company it does. that it can absorb that. And next year, a positive $4 billion, and the year after that, up to potentially $6 billion. And all of that, is, none of that's in the market. And this, because this market doesn't like uncertainty in cyclicals, it's delighted to take uncertainty in growth stocks, but not in cyclicals, which is a kind of an interesting asymmetry. But taking the kind of uh, earnings before interest to taxes and depreciation we're expecting for GE and giving it a, a reasonably low multiple of 13 times, which is consistent with peers, we can get to a share price that's almost twice where it's trading today. And that's, right. a, that's you know, just, a, just a kind of ballpark estimate of how much recovery potential is in a stock like this, accentuated by the fact that we have an aviation crisis. What is your cash flow recovery based upon? Well, uh, so it's not only the we, the recovery in aviation, which is very important for GE, but it's the restructuring that was happening before the pandemic occurred. And very significant cost cutting and very significant in increases in efficiency. And that's a theme that runs through just about all the value stocks that we analyze. They can't just be cheap. Like undervaluation from our perspective, an institutional investor isn't enough. We need companies that are in the throes of operational restructuring, which means that the management of the business is talented and adept enough to improve the trajectory of earnings. And so there's this, there's this in, uh, the, the catalyst for the business is actually in management. And that's something that our clients are, are understanding, and that's why they're so patient, because competent management can, can take a business such as GE's that's, that's well-positioned in a number of areas and make much more out of it. One last question. One investment for a long-term diversified portfolio from your perspective, what should we all own some of? I think about climate change like everybody else does is it's important, and in this war against carbon, Volkswagen. I know, no one's there. Volkswagen, the diesel gate nightmare stock. But no, this company is perfectly positioned to move and dominate in electrification of vehicles, in mass vehicles. It's, Volkswagen is our, our largest holding in our client portfolios in our international and global for a really good reason. For one thing, the stock is very undervalued. It trades at a low single-digit PE multiple because investors think the internal combustion engine business has no terminal growth. And 
we just disagree and? with that. They, they'll, they'll, steep, they'll keep selling, they're selling SUVs now in China, like they're going out of style, and they're going to sell more electric vehicles. They'll have the greatest number of platforms. They'll have, um, I'd say their battery supply chain will be very robust. Management is totally committed. The, the fever and, and determination in Europe to be a world's leader in green energy makes the uh, likelihood of more charging stations greater. There'll be lots of government help. In battery electric vehicles, we are taking the bet that Volkswagen will be ahead of the pack. And, it, and as a result, that multiple should go up as, as they manufacture more vehicles and get to scale, costs fall and profitability increases. If you take all the pieces that are under the Volkswagen umbrella, you get far more than the current market capitalization in our view. So that's something to look forward to, is the company really showing the world what they can do in electric vehicles. And there'll be many other competitors, but nobody is better positioned than this company. All right, we'll leave it there. Sarah Ketterer, thank you so much for joining us and making the case for international value and global value, as a matter of fact. Thanks so much. Thank you. At the close of every wealth track, we try to give you one suggestion to help you build and protect your wealth over the long term. This week's action point is consider adding some international value stocks to your portfolio. After a decade of outperformance by U.S. growth stocks, it is probably time to take some profits there and rebalance into one of the most out-of-favor investment areas. International value certainly qualifies. Two of my favorite wealth track guests over the years, Morningstar veterans Christine Benz and Russ Kinnell, recently discussed the same idea. Kinnell recommended two gold-rated funds. One was Causeway International Value, which Kinnell chose for its very disciplined value approach that really works well for the long haul. The other gold-rated fund is Dodge & Cox International Stock Fund, which Kinnell notes is a hard sell because the record's not been great, but all the fundamentals are there. Great managers, low expense ratio, and a good yield. However you decide to invest, there are bargains galore in international value, and this is as good a time as any to diversify into this unpopular sector. Next week on WealthTrack, award-winning financial planner Mark Cortazzo discusses the financial risks of black swan events like a pandemic and how to manage them. In this week's extra feature, how has the pandemic experience changed Ketterer's personal and professional perspective? We'll find out. Don't forget to connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and our YouTube channel. And thanks for remembering to join us today. Have a super weekend and make the week ahead a healthy, profitable, and productive one. Oh,